Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Long before unicorns were trending in popular culture, Lucy Bassley was thinking about unicorn lawyers. In her role as Assistant General Counsel at Microsoft, overseeing contract management systems and procurement, she had a unique view into how process and technology can improve service delivery. Today, she has spun these unicorn lawyer traits into a trailblazing career as founder, advisor, speaker, author, just to list a few. For example, Lucy's founder of Inno Law Group, a legal service provider and consultant to law firms and in-house legal teams on a variety of innovation initiatives. If that's not enough, she's also the chief legal strategist at Law Geeks, a legal startup that automates contract review services with artificial intelligence. Listen in to today's conversation to learn more about how Microsoft's culture of empowerment and trust influenced Lucy's growth, how in-house work allows unicorn lawyers to flourish, and the massive impact of this last year on legal innovation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining. Before we started, we were just talking about how pandemic has sort of affected everything in terms of getting dressed up and coming to a Zoom meeting. And that's why we do these things with audio. I've learned to check in advance and I didn't have the chance to do that. I'm like, am I expecting video or not? And it's always a bit of a, a gamble. So <laughs> this, this is a, a little bit of a treat right now. Yeah, it's all, it's all good. I assume I'm catching you in Seattle. You are sunny Seattle. You, you've hit us in a couple of sunny days here, which is the beginning of our prime season. So yeah. There's nothing more beautiful than Seattle on a sunny day, is there? Right? That's what I say. I'm like, there's no place else you'd rather be in August. This yeah. is this is our destination for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What took you to Seattle? I know you grew up in Texas and went to school in Houston. I and did. You went to you went to Seattle. Did you go to Seattle to work for Davis Wright or? You know, no. I actually, my husband ended up bringing us here. So I had a job all set out of law school with Baker and McKenzie at the time, the world's biggest law firm. I felt like, wow, I've really, you know, checked the boxes of the the career path and You've hit the, the big time. I did. It felt good. And then um, my husband, at the last minute, he was graduating with a bachelor of science in computer science and got this email that uh, Microsoft was looking for none other than uh, Hebrew-speaking, Hebrew-reading engineers. I'm in the middle of taking my bar exam in Texas for my beautiful job at Baker McKenzie, and he's like, this Microsoft is calling, and they're going to fly me up. And I'm like, what? I, I got to get back to my exam. Sure, sure, go. Sure, sounds sounds cute. Have had it. And <laughs> the rest is history. So he got a job here, and I found myself in the one corner of the country that didn't have a Baker McKenzie office. Oh, how is that possible? It, that's exactly how it was. I landed here on a one-way ticket going, um, uh, I'm totally now out of the loop, right? I, I'm, I'm a fresh law school graduate that had this great offer, and, and what do I do now? So I had to kind of start all over, but, you know, everything happens for a reason, and Seattle's been nothing but amazing since, uh, since I got here. So It's a great hub for innovation and tech and all the kinds of things that play into the the contributions you've been making and are making to the legal profession. So, you know, I guess. 
Well, it's honest. It, it's interesting you say that because I look back at so many of my uh, former law school mates and, and, and you know peers and colleagues that stayed in the Houston area, Texas area, and the industries they're a part of, that the work that they work on is significantly different from where I ended up. So absolutely that this geographical change had a complete and direct effect on my career trajectory, which has been, I never thought of it that way. I, I just noticed it, right? I'm like, oh, they're in those industries that I would have expected myself to move mm -hmm. into, right? Mm -hmm. Oil and gas, energy, you know, banking, financial, and perhaps if you're in the Dallas area, but there is no doubt that uh, I ended up with the coolest job. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. How long were you at Davis Wright? Oh, just gosh, a couple of years. I really want to say to you, it was maybe two or three years. I actually started first at a commercial bankruptcy boutique, not having ever touched bankruptcy code, uh, actually stayed away from it uh, when I was in law school. And, you know, again, through generous connections of, of people I'd met at Baker McKenzie who were kind enough to support the fact that I, I can't work there and made introductions to all kinds of law firm leaders in the Seattle area. But again, this fresh graduate Having not gone through their summer program, I, it was hard for me to plug in and, and um, I ended up meeting this amazing uh, commercial, really a commercial bankruptcy boutique law firm that had, you know, a national reputation and uh, that's how it started. And from there followed one of the attorneys there who's a, a kind of a great leader in, in his own right, followed him over to Davis Wright Tremaine, then ended up uh. with my own little world in Davis Wright. And Microsoft was a client, and then that is really the, you know, the kind of the rest is history and a very, very typical, I would say, path to in-house, right? I mean, I worked with the clients. Right, that's not, a, that's not an unusual story. It happens, okay. happens a fair amount. Was there anything you took from your experience in private practice that has sort of shaped the way you've thought about the approach to the practice either while you're, I know that, I know I read somewhere where you talked about Microsoft, you you sort of came to the realization one way you were practicing in a very innovative fashion. And I want to get to that. But before we get sure. to the Microsoft experience, is there anything in your experiences these two or three years that has stuck with you in terms of how to think about the practice? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's like it was yesterday when it dawned on me that Everything that came to me naturally and intuitively about efficiency, right? I'm not, that it's in my DNA as a, as a human being, as a mom, as a wife, as a friend, it's just it's who I am. And my husband's always called me as, call me, he's like, you're our family engineer. He's like, you're always engineer, <laughs> engineered, you know, everything about our lives and planning and, and, and all of that. It just didn't, it didn't really work for me at the law firm. And the firm is a fantastic firm. I've, I've got the wonderful relationships and connections with people there. And it has nothing to do with the firm. It is the law firm business model that mm -hmm. obviously is the subject of its own many, many books and novels out there. It just didn't work. It actually went a, a little bit against the grain of everything I wanted to do. And so I learned that pretty early on. So as a, you know, a junior associate, I mean, at that point, because I'd spent some time at, at that bankruptcy boutique firm, I was, you know, my what, third, fourth year of practice when you're just starting to get into your rhythm and stride and know what you're doing and can handle stuff and clients and new client relationships start forming within a company like Microsoft. And I realized, oh, wait, those technically aren't considered my clients, technically, right. um, for, for, which, which AKA means compensation purposes. Yes, <laughs> that's not, exactly what it means. Yeah. Right. Let's let, not mince words, but that was all shocking and new for me. And I didn't understand it. And, and but, but what do you mean? Uh, number one. Number two, the work itself. I can get through some stuff pretty quickly. 
I'm not, it, 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 it's just a fact, right? If this isn't a reference of my, my quality or my work, it's just, I, I'm, I, if I know what I'm doing, I can get through it quickly, but then, oh gosh, did I get through it too quickly? Because again, that doesn't work well in that business model. So it just didn't work for how I wanted to work and the kind of work I wanted to do. And then at the same time, I started realizing, wow, there's a better way to do this work. And, and I started experimenting with it, right? And, and kind of creating a team approach to a, a little group of paralegals that were helping me on some of the transactional work that was of the, you know, lower complexity work. And, and I started tracking things and I did a little table in a Word document because that's kind of all I knew at the time. And I would provide that to the client and I was like, oh, wow, thanks for that. And I thought, well, of course, how else would you know? You've, you know, you've sent like 50 things to me this past, you know, month alone. That's a lot of things. In my case, it was contracts. I'm a commercial transactions lawyer. That's, that's what I love. It's what I do. But the how I was doing it started to change fundamentally. And again, with that, I'm like, well, hold on. You know, we're billing less because I'm using lower cost resources. Hmm. Again, that doesn't seem to be working in my advantage. So <laughs> all of the kind of what I thought was logical, just it just didn't fit, frankly. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that was the, that, yeah, it's not... And again, I hate to, it's not about criticizing uh, the model. The model is what it is. But the way I like to deliver just doesn't fit in that model. Yeah. So, so you wound up going to Microsoft. I did. Dream job. Dream, dream. Yeah. Dream. Tell me a little bit about that. You spent 13 years with Microsoft. And really, it looks like it was a great opportunity for you to put in practice some of these concepts and ideas and philosophies yes. that you yes. you came to the table with. Yes, I was blessed to have a job I loved every day. And lots of people tell me all the time that it's not natural and then I'm so lucky and how do I not realize how lucky I am? And I didn't know that I was that lucky. I, I just, I loved my job so much and I loved it because I enjoyed the work. I had so much freedom to be creative. I was trusted. I was empowered. So a lot of what I was able to accomplish was it was organically me evolving my work the way I wanted to do my work. What was nice was I wasn't told how to do my work, right? I was told what the work is and get it done. <laughs> and that flexibility and, and, and empowerment is absolutely priceless. It is priceless. I don't see enough of it really out there, especially not for lawyers who have been trained and conditioned, you know, a particular way. And then those same lawyers who become then leaders in corporate law departments don't necessarily change how they deliver, how they think about clients, right? There, there isn't a magical transformation that happens for people who go in-house, frankly, right? Lawyers are taught right. how to deliver and how to sell the service. When they go in-house, I'm going to use the word unfortunately, oftentimes they just continue to buy the same way they used to sell and they buy the same stuff they used to sell. And so the few of us who kind of have this transformation or, or I always call it a mutated gene, this operational mutated gene that I had, and it's allowed to flourish you know, in-house and it, it gets to really blossom, so to speak. That's what I got to do. And that's, I just didn't know even what was ahead of me, right? I thought I was going to go in and do a lot of contracts. I was a good contracts lawyer and I was going to do bigger and exciting and fancier deals, which I did. But then with that came this opportunity to really think about the how, not the what. I got good at the what, but the how was this amazing challenge, right? And, and a puzzle. And so it was Tell me a little bit about that puzzle yeah. and sort of how you, what's Tackled the solution it. set? How you, how did you tackle it? That's a better question. Yeah. So what's interesting is it's, it's the puzzle that doesn't have that picture in front of you. So you don't have a thousand pieces and you're like, is that the dog's nose or tail? And, I, and then I look at the picture and it helps you figure out where it goes. It was kind of this 
forming itself. And I didn't know what the end state looked like. That was the other thing. So I started attacking it like, like I did when I, you know, back at the firm, when I would just see, hey, it's got to be a better way. And then I would start experimenting with the better way. You know, at, at the time, technology wasn't what it is today, obviously. First of all, I was at the world's greatest technology company. Firmly believed it. Frankly, still believe it. Love it. Love everything about the productivity stuff that, that Microsoft puts out there. Nothing better still. But from the law department's perspective and how lawyers did their lawyering, right, there, there wasn't that much technology. There wasn't that much automation yet. It was kind of just starting. And because we're in a technology company, we're building a lot of our own, a lot of experimentation was happening. I'd like to preface with that because people expect my talk to always be about, wow, you're at the best technology company. You must have had all the widgets and gadgets. No, a lot of the innovation I did was around people and process. And I will still bang that drum any chance I get. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it's interesting you say that because... Hey, that's that's such an important learning for anybody who wants to try to change. Starting with people and process is always the right place to start. But this this dynamic you talk about, particularly in the world's largest technology company, where the legal department stands last in line for technology resources, is a dynamic I presume you still encounter with your clients now, where legal departments are not they're not revenue producers, right? It's hard to right. be seen as value creators getting access to resources, you've got to find other ways to oh, deliver services differently. So this sounds like it was a great crucible for that. It was, yeah, absolutely. There was no, we, we weren't different in that regard. I think we made a lot of leaps and strides during actually that that tenure, not, not necessarily even in my particular work area, but as a department, we did make a lot of leaps and strides. And obviously now it feels like, wow, it's really, you know, hit or hit a rocket ship, which is beautiful. And I am watching it from the outside with, with great joy. Um, but, you know, it, it's a it, there's a different influx of you know tech awareness tech uh excitement even amongst because again lawyers are lawyers it doesn't really always matter where they go so i'd walk down the hall and still see all the same numbers of yellow notepads piling up even when OneNote was just launched right we have this amazing product called OneNote. i, I would just be amazed like but we have this this is our stuff but you know lawyers know how to do their work their way so you know, lawyers move forward by looking backward right and so that's our, that's our value prop. Our entire professional value prop is we're excellent precedent decipherers right? yes, yes. Um, and applicators of, of precedent. So so exactly that. So so again, the law departments, just because they're part of something doesn't mean that they're necessarily embracing whatever they're part of. It's easier when you're in a technology productivity provider company, right? Never mind all the other stuff Microsoft did, but it's like, hey. We love our word and outlook. Yay! We live in it. We love it. And that's that's great. But I've talked to, you know, lawyers and competitive technology companies where they really still want to use Word, but they're in a direct competitor. <laughs> so it's, 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 and we can all guess who that is. And, and it's fun to have those conversations because at the end of the day, you want to be productive. And that's really right. everything that guided my principles, right? Efficiency and productivity and how do I get more of these contracts done? But the other thing that I think was Frankly, looking back now, you know, I would call it innovative as I didn't look at my clients in house as clients, which is again a law firm tech terminology that we bring in in house. We're the only ones who do that, right? These are business partners. When you come in house, you're part of a business. We should be the legal partners, right? To, to the business. There's HR business partners, there's IT business, there's other departments have adopted it. In house, we still like to talk about clients. When we talk to our business colleagues and attorneys, they're like, why do you call me a client? But we do that. We train everybody to fit into our box. And I realized very quickly, I didn't, I don't want to operate that way. And, and I hated saying it depends. And I, I hated not having answers. When the business would ask me, why does it take so long? Or where is this thing? Or 
all of that kind of mystery that came with the legal function from the perspective of the business, I didn't, I didn't feel proud of it. I didn't like that. I, I wanted to give them an answer and maybe just even my own control issues. I'm like, well, I need to know. How can I not know the answer to your question? How am I possibly delivering a service to you if I don't have an answer to that question? So there, that was, I think, the other component was not just like my, you know, natural need to be efficient and move the business faster, but that transparency, right? Being able to have answers, compile data. I never called it data. Now I know I called to call it data. But I needed to know how many, what kind, how often, how long, which ones, right? I wanted to answer all these questions. So a lot of what I did was actually with that goal in mind. I, I needed to get those answers. That's what drove the changes in how we worked. So it was a it was an unintentional innovation, let's put it that way. And I think now it's what I'm seeing is there is like assigned innovation programs and delegated innovation, you know, jobs and 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 I think that's hard. I think that's that's a, it's a tall order. It is hard to just assign it, put innovation in a box, isn't it? It shouldn't be because it should be everybody's job. Every lawyer should be innovative. And I see this actually more law firms because I work with law firms and in-house. In, in uh, most of my clients are corporate law departments, but I do some work with law firms on just advising on innovation strategy, innovation programs, doing some coaching and training, actually. And what I realized is there's this kind of double-edged sword with roles in the innovation space and in, innovation in the title call it what you want, it looks different, and you know, it's called something different at a lot of firms, but it's now been like relegated to this person or little team, and it kind of gets all the other attorneys off the hook is what it feels like, and that's not okay. So it's wonderful to have this designated team that actually is skilled and capable of doing things a little bit differently and changing things, but that doesn't get everybody else off the hook. So having the attention on a particular team is wonderful, but everybody has to have that empowerment, enablement, to, to be innovative and, and frankly, the expectation, right? That everybody's innovative and that's the same at law departments. So you had at Microsoft, you had this confluence of events. You had your own mindset, your own way of thinking that came naturally to you about the desire to think efficiently and more effectively. And you were given the space and the empowerment, I think is a term you used to accomplish yes. these great things. Okay, now take that in your practice now, as you said, is helping law firms, law departments become more innovative and to think about it so everybody can have it. Those are two variables that I suspect you don't find that often right. in these institutions. How do you create those enabling characteristics or work around them or compensate sure. for them? How do you how do you how do you deal with that? Yep. So this is one of those great examples where it all comes down to the people. It's all about the people. And I will say that every day because I've still not seen that disproven, uh, regardless of what widgets and gadgets and amazing technologies available, right? Uh, what you just described is about, one, the individual lawyer, knowing how to be innovative, being educated, trained, informed on how to be a little bit more creative with their work, modernize their practice, right? Just, just thinking differently. Not everybody has that inherently, you know, in them, and, and that's okay. Parts of it can be taught for sure. First and foremost, it's opening the door to innovation, creating a, frankly, lower bar to entry. We can't just have this little club of innovation people swimming in the same little pond. We know who we are. We all know each other. That's not enough, right? In, innovation isn't an exclusive club. It needs to kind of 
be opened up through, I think, some training, some empowerment, some coaching, some education, frankly. You know, I can't help but, but reference, right? I mean, I wrote a book on this because it made me feel like, you know, lawyers just, they can't access it, so they just shove it away. It's like, what, what is innovation? That's not my thing. It's too, it's too complex. It's too complicated. Or I need to convert myself into a robot or learn to code immediately. And, and that's not the definition of innovation. And so I think simplifying that definition, making sure everybody sees a role that they have in it and personalizing innovation. So I wrote this book, I created a workbook and then I, I created online courseware. Cause like some lawyers, please over your cup of coffee, just read a chapter or, or watch a snippet because it's truly trying to make innovation more tangible. I have, and the book, the book yeah. is called The Simple Guide to Legal Innovation. Correct. Right. Thank you. Yes, yes. Yes. And uh, it's it's a great read. I encourage everybody listening to you can get it on Amazon. Oh well thank yeah, thank you for that. It's it's it really was a a, a um a bucket list thing where I was like, I gotta just get the word out because I have too many, again, former law school friends or friends, you know, colleagues we've grown up together and I see them successful on all accounts, all accounts and measures of what a lawyer's success path looks like. And they're still storing documents on their C drive. And they're still oh walking with a yellow notepad and they're still putting in their point one, point two, point three throughout the day. And they're still playing ping pong with the work with their clients. Boom, I send you a piece of document. Boom, I send you back a document. Bing, I send you an invoice. Boom, I send you some money. That, that's awful. And they're only doing the specific task that they were given and assigned. And they're not thinking about the business problems. And, and, and they're not thinking about being an extension of that, you know, law department. And from this is from the law firm perspective, right? So. So that needs to be, that's education. So I don't blame attorneys. They're either not rewarded, by the way, for, for changing. So that's okay, but they need to be educated. And right now you can't just pop open a CLE on this topic. You really can't. You can spend 10 hours in a Six Sigma for lawyers class or project management for lawyers, or you can get, of course, thousands of hours on the latest uh, GDPR, cannabis law, you name it. But you really don't have a way to quickly learn how to be a little bit more innovative, you know, in bite-sized chunks. So that's one. That's the personal lawyer part of it. The other aspect that you mentioned was the empowerment that I had. And that was directly from my leadership that I was a part of, the command and control I was under for many, many years, not my full 13 years, but for many, many years, I had that platform. It was given to me, maybe unintentionally, but certainly it was never minimized. It was never taken away, you know, it didn't change until it changed, frankly. Um, and that comes down to people also, which is why I say it's all about the people. In that case, it's not about me as the individual attorney seeking, you know, better, faster, more efficient ways of doing things, all of which I call innovation now because it's just easy buzzword to tag on all of that. But now it's about the people that are, you know, the layers on top of me, my, my management chain of command, the culture from the top down as it's filtered to me, and then my immediate manager, my manager's manager. It, it really has to be top down, and I see it every day. I see more of that. Well, now, you know what? I'm going to say it's a 50-50 problem. So the, the sad part is when it's the two 50s are in two different companies. <laughs> yeah, I did have one other thing that worked in my favor, to be totally, totally transparent. I had this thing that happened in 2008, which was this recession this little recession and because of the, I was on the buy side of contracting at Microsoft where we'd spend circa 17 billion a year maybe at the time according to our disclosure documents boy I became popular <laughs> so I bet you I, did so, so there there was a little uh, influence from the outside that I really got to point to and say we got to do stuff better right and 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 of course I had the whole you know the finance organization going legal 
you, you know, contracts are a mess. And so it, that paved my path. I mean, that made it easier for grease some wheels, let's just say. But all the hard work of the internal change management, convincing lawyers to do things differently, that was still just as painful, I would say, as without a global recession. But <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, we had a similar experience at Cyfarth where we were doing work uh, and trying to think through the business structures before the recession. And the recession created a, an urgency to it that people began to understand, but it didn't change the underlying dynamics of change management or people's resistance or anything else. Humans. Humans. Again, it, comes down, it just comes down to the people. And I mean, I can't tell you how, what's been nice being kind of outside, right? I lived in this wonderful bubble for, for 13 years, and now seeing into so many other bubbles, some just as big, depending on the client size, some smaller bubbles, right? And everything in the middle, the human aspect of it is the same. Right. At, the, at a smaller, you know, the micro level, it is still the same. The change, the fear, the unknown. Of course, this past year threw everything for a loop. On the one hand, and I'm sure, you know, if I could preempt some of the, you know, the conversation as well, the impact this past year has had on innovation, legal, you know, evolution of legal service has been huge. Just by sheer force of shoving tens of thousands of professional, you know, licensed U.S. lawyers into uh, technology. It just shoved, it just, there was no choice. You could not yell down the hall to your trusty, I mean, I hate to relive the 50s or, hey, Joe Susie, where's my Johnson file is not a thing anymore. Right. And I, for one, love that. So, so yeah, this year had this huge effect. And of course, it had a compounding effect on work life balance in general, equity in the profession. I mean, and frankly, personal, and people are stepping back going, life short. Do I love my family? <laughs> Do I love my spouse? Do I have a home I'm comfortable? I mean, a million things are happening that are all, again, very much a human, human aspect to it. And we right. all bring our human selves to work every day. How sure. much of these dynamics stick as we, God willing, get back to something closer to normal? How much is the technology, the issues around sure. work, with all the things you've talked about? What's your view on that? So I'm going to try to be very practical. I'm going to put my hopeful side, you know, away for a minute and just say what I, what I really think will happen. I think the hybrid workplace will finally make its way into law firm life. In-house had, of course, more success with that because they joined big corporations where there's a culture that, that, that forces itself on the law department, whether the lawyers like it or not, which has been healthy, frankly. I think now we're going to finally see that in law firms, which will go a long way to hopefully curing some of the work-life balance issues that people have been dealing with. Largely women, as we know, that's a disproportionate impact, of course, on women. So I do see that one very tactical thing. I'll be delighted to see the cost of real estate as the line item and the law firm overhead go down. I don't imagine that will immediately reduce fees to for their clients, but those empty offices, those empty conference rooms, which quietly have become empty anyway, pre-pandemic. It was just unofficial. It was unspoken. It was, you know, um, just there. Empty, quiet offices. So I think now it's going to become more formally part of the program. And that I really, really welcome. I hope I speak for a lot of other, I'll just say the working mom community, which is a, obviously a subset of others who, who are impacted by work-life balance issues. But from the working mom community, I, I would say that is going to be a huge leap forward and a relief. And we're seeing it now, right? Those firms who aren't quick enough to make, they're all, they'll all get there. 
we all know firms love to follow, right? We, we all know it's very hard to be the first, but they love to follow. So we'll get there, but the ones who aren't going to get there fast enough are going to lose people. Well, and that's one of the key drivers, right? Because if, if you want law firms to change, there has to be a driver for that because otherwise, why would you change? You know, you... That's right. Either client demands or your your own people will move. So, so I do think that will stick. I think the other thing that will stick is a little more openness on to technology and awareness. So what I think, again, being very practical and understanding change and, and humans and lawyers, I think the things that they're living in already, there'll be opportunity to seep and extend that. So again, not going to get paid anymore by Office 365 or by Microsoft, but hey, that's a big part of the technology that lawyers have embraced. Obviously, they love their email, they love, they love their you know, their outlook, their word, all that stuff. But now they're learning to love Teams. And by virtue of being forced in there, they will start collaborating online in a way that they would never have before. So it's going to be a natural step. I don't think this year will have that amazing effect that some of the other legal tech providers are saying, well, now they're all going to move to online contract management systems and negotiate documents in the cloud. And, you know, e-billing is going to change. I mean, that's going to go through its natural progression anyway. It might be a little faster, but what's really going to be faster, I think, is what's already kind of natively a part of the world they're in, which is Office 365 for most law departments and most law firms. It just is, with all due respect to, you know, the G Suite, most, right. most still live in, in, in Office 365. So the no. opportunity is huge there. Oh, that's right. That's right. Let me back up. We've been using the term innovation. I've heard you give a fabulous definition of the term because it's a term that's so misused in the industry these ways. Give us your definition of innovation. Oh my, well, the I love to pull the, this long one from Wikipedia, the source of all things true. But what I loved about it is better solutions. It just has this little part that just says you do something that's a better solution. So I always say, if I lower the bar enough to get every lawyer to play, if they do something different today that results in either an improved experience for their client or their business partner if they're in-house, or makes their job a little easier for them, I'm going to give them the innovation stamp. I'm going to just do it because <laughs> I want them to be energized by that and, and be a part of this club that most lawyers are excluded from. 98% of the practicing lawyers today aren't a part of this little innovation club that's been formed unofficially, obviously, but it, we all know it. You're kind of in and, and everybody else is out. And those lawyers don't feel connected because they feel like they're not something enough, not techie enough, not savvy. I don't, I, you know, I just, I'm still doing the billable hour. I don't have enough AFAs. I don't do AFAs, whatever. So I, I want to broaden that. Well, what, I, what I like about that definition, that approach is, is that it's client focused. It has to be. And it's focused on the results and this solving a problem because I think too many people, as they go through this, they don't take a moment to figure out what the problem is they're trying to solve that's and right. then actually produce the solution. Well, that's the whole problem. problem, quote unquote, you know, providing legal advice. Well, thank you. That's actually the easy part. I'm sorry, but it is the easy part. And it happens in house just as much as at law firms. The more you have experts, deep expertise in a particular area of law, the advice, it's very high, highly informed on the law, right? And the legal principles and, and it's thorough and it's in depth and then it's handed to somebody who can't do anything with it. There's a problem <laughs> that somebody's trying to solve or avoid and legal advice needs to bridge. It needs to transform itself from advice, right? To counsel, operating counsel, it has to operate. 
it has to make sense for the business. And a lot of lawyers forget that. Even though, even though they come in house, right? They're part of the business, but they kind of forget that you can't just provide advice. It's almost the easy way out. I know I'm talking to an amazing law firm and law firm lawyers who don't all love when I say that, but it's almost easier. The, the brain gymnastics is fun. That's why a lot of us become lawyers. And then you're done and you provide this beautiful 80 page memo via email. Right. It's fabulous. And you send the bill and you haven't helped solve the client's problem. Right. The value, the value of the work, right, is where we need to get. There's so many additional entrants into the marketplace, AALSPs, the big four tech companies. Do you see a different way that they approach this topic you're talking about? How legal advice is provided? They're a mindset that's different? Oh, it's completely different. They're, they're, first of all, they're running a business first. Very few of them have truly philosophical, let's say, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> you know, push for what they do. Sure, with the right leadership, they, they find the philosophy behind it, but they're, they're running a business. They see an opportunity and they're running a business. The opportunity is to solve a problem, save money for clients, get work done faster. There are all these all these reasons they're doing what they do that are completely unconnected to the reason that law firms right, are born, which is to provide legal counsel. That's right there, the great divide. They're also brilliantly pushing up against this wonderful regulatory box that we have in the US, brilliantly pushing up against that definition. I love it. I'm watching it very closely. I'm doing it myself. I set myself up as a law firm. I call myself a law firm and consultancy. I welcome anybody to poke and ask me what that means. <laughs> I love, love that conversation. Law firm check. Absolutely. What does that mean? Well, I've filled this requirement, that requirement, and that's requirement. Great. What do you do mostly? I'm mostly counsel on how people can be more efficient and operationally minded, and I don't charge anything by the hour. And can I provide legal advice? Yes, I can. Well, what does that you know, make me? So these other all these other providers are super careful to not upset any regulators because they don't want that. But the service they offer is constantly, constantly pushing at that. I think that's brilliant, right? Because how much work do attorneys in-house, I will say first and foremost, but even many of the practice areas at law firms is actually the practice of law. We've backed ourselves into some box that doesn't make sense really, because all those laws were defined or regulations were created for a completely different purpose, right? Protecting the public, right? To avoid ambulance chasing, all that good stuff. And here you have corporate counsel. My role is my, my favorite. I'm the first one. I will admit openly right now that 95% of what I did as a licensed U.S. lawyer in-house at Microsoft, even part of my job at, you know, Davis Wright, that wasn't the practice of law. My commercial bankruptcy work, different. I had to go in front of a judge. Right. That's what those rules are intended for. Right. Commercial transactions lawyers, how much of it is practicing law? Why are we paying $750, $1,000 an hour for something that an excellent 20 plus year experience contract manager is doing in house at Accenture, at IBM, at HP, at VMware, you name them, so at Microsoft? Where are you going to draw that line? Right. Yeah. There's a difference, right, between giving legal advice and delivering legal services. Absolutely. And, and... you just said it beautifully. Yes. And most legal entities do both. But I think what I hear you saying is law firms do from a mindset <laughs> of legal advice, whereas the new entrants do it from the mindset of delivering legal services. That's right. And when you do it from the mindset of legal advice, you get to charge way more. 
Yes, I say because it used to be a luxury. To be honest, right now it's becoming a bit of a detriment, right? And that's why the new entrants are being so successful because they are forcing the questions in front of their clients, which are the same corporate law departments, right? Right. So they're forcing the question of, do you really need a law firm to do that? We'll see how those answers come up uh, yeah. and how it changes the profession. Lucy, we're we. I could keep this conversation going forever, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. And if people want to find you online, it's at inolawgroup.com or my own website, lucybosley.com. Either one will get you to what, what we do today, what, what my team does. And yeah, I'm and LinkedIn. I'm always happy to chat about this subject. I hope we got to at least a part of what you were hoping to get to. <laughs> we could go on forever. <laughs> we did indeed. We could keep this going forever. Lucy, thank you very much. Have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.